do first is I'm going to, instead of reading through the passage, uh, the whole chapter, which is chapter 25, we're, I'm going to show a, a depiction again of uh, those who just who use the actual scripture here, and maybe you can visualize what happened better than just if I were to read it straight out. So go ahead, John. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They urgently requested Festus, as a favor to them, to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem. For they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me and press charges against the man there, if he's done anything wrong. After spending eight or ten days with them, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul appeared, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him bringing many serious charges against him, which they could not prove. Then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews, or against the temple, or against Caesar. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his counsel, he declared, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, There is a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them that it is not the Roman custom to hand over any man before he has faced his accusers and has had an opportunity to defend himself against their charges. When they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I'd expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus, whom Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters. So I asked if he'd be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. When Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him held 
until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. He replied, Tomorrow you will hear him. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking officers and the leading men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa, and all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him. In Jerusalem, and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death. But because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send on a prisoner without specifying the charges again. Okay, what we let me just summarize then what we've had, what we have happened in, in chapter 25. Chapter 24, Felix is the governor of the area, and he just messes this whole thing up. And Felix is recalled back to Rome in AD 59, and so then they bring in Portius Festus, the guy that we see here, and bring him in to run things because. And Felix goes back up to Rome and, and has to stand in, at court there. And he, he gets out by the skin of his teeth, but we don't hear any more from Felix. We didn't hear much about him before that. Now Festus comes in, Portius Festus comes in, and they, after three days on the job, he's in Caesarea, which is on the east coast. That's the Roman sort of central area of government on the, east, on the, I'm sorry, on the west coast of, of Palestine. And he's there... In, as many others have been before him, like we talked about last week, Pilate and so on. So he's come in and Paul's there and um, almost immediately he goes, after three days on the job, he goes to Jerusalem, which is just, of course, southeast of Caesarea on the, on the coast. So he goes down to Jerusalem and meets with all the chief priests and, and, the, and the Jewish leaders, it says, which really is the Sanhedrin. That's the group of ruling, the ruling body of, of the Jews, so that's where he goes to, to meet them and meet and greet, you know, the new leader and get to know the, the new guy and he's doing his thing that he needs to do. It's a very complicated relationship, of course, because you've got Rome ruling over the Jews. The Jews hate the Romans. The Jews despised Felix. And the first thing that happens when Festus now gets to Jerusalem is that they, they still, two years later, they've held Paul and they made their charges. And two years later, they are still upset about Paul. And they still want to do something about Paul. And as, and as my girls and many in, the, in, the, in our family tell me many times when I get hung up on something, uh, Pops, let it go. They could not let it go. 
two years they, they just boiled about this. We've got another high priest in here, and, and, and even though Ananias is still in the background pulling the strings, so they come before this other high priest and all these, the Sanhedrin again, they say, we want to get rid of this guy. He is a, he's bad news, and we want you to take care of it. They, want, they said, look, we want you to transfer Paul to Jerusalem, and we'll try him here. Festus said, well, I'm, I'm going down to Caesarea, which is an important point. So I'm going, we're going down, because he's going down from Jerusalem. They always say that because Jerusalem's high. So he said, I'm going down to Caesarea in a few days, and, and Paul's already there. I'll see him there. You guys come to Caesarea with me. That's not exactly what they wanted. Why? Because they wanted Paul to come up to Jerusalem so that they could, it says they could ambush him and kill him. And you remember in the, in the last chapter, we talked about the plan to kill Paul, but that was done by these uh, outside assassins, these 40 guys that got together and said, let's kill Paul. And, of course, that plan was thwarted when they snuck him out of town and took him down to Caesarea two years before this. So now they're trying to kill him again. Now it's not the 40 band of 40. Now it's the leaders themselves. They are still anxious to remove Paul from the face of the earth. Festus goes back to Caesarea after hanging out with his buddies for eight to ten days or so. And, and uh, then he uh, goes down to back home and, and, and he said, I want to I see Paul. Let's bring him in. So Paul comes in. And he said, well, and, and Festus has these Jewish leaders there, and they bring these serious charges against them, but notice it says you can't prove any of them. And so Paul, he said, what, are, what is your response to the charges? So here he goes again. He said, I've done nothing against the law of the Jews. I've done nothing against the temple, against the law of God. I've done nothing against the law of the Romans. So... I th he said, well, are you willing to go to Jerusalem? He goes, and, and God whispered in his ear, I think, and said, no, you do not want to go to Jerusalem. And he said, no, I don't want to go to Jerusalem. I appeal to Caesar in verse 11. In verse 12, Festus says, all right, you appealed to Caesar. Why could he appeal to Caesar? He's a Roman citizen. So he appeals to Caesar. Festus, now Festus is in a position where if he's not careful, he's going to be in the same situation that Felix was in. Because Roman, the Romans had, a very, had very clear guidelines on how to treat their citizens when they were accused of crimes. And the accusers have to, be, have to present the, the crimes and be there, and there has to be enough evidence to convict before. There has to be a, a fair trial. But they had the right to appeal, just like we have the right to appeal. He had the right, the, the right to appeal all the way up to Caesar. So I want to go to Caesar. And so he said, okay, you're going to Caesar. And then King Agrippa, Herod Agrippa II, and Bernice, what an interesting couple this one is. This is brother and sister. Festus, they come, come in, and Festus discusses Paul's case, and he wants to get Agrippa's input. Look at verse 19, though. I love what he said. Instead, and now this is Festus talking to Agrippa, and he said, instead they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. That's it in, in, in a nutshell, isn't it? That's religion versus Jesus. That's everything against Christianity. They, he, uh, they, they have some kind of religious issue. It's about a, a dead man named Jesus, and Paul's claiming he was alive. 
very good. It's got the gospel right there. Death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what it was all about. All in one sentence. So Festus, he got that part right. Now, but then it goes on. Agrippa says, well, I think I want to hear this guy. All right, who are characters? Portius Festus. Interesting character. He was appointed by Nero. Nero was around 54 to 68 before the, the big fire. Um, he succeeded Felix. We know very little about him. We know that he was much better than Felix. We know that he came in, and the first thing he did was take care of this big, roving band of robbers, assassins, and murders known as the Sicarii. He put an imposter in their midst and said, hey, come out to the wilderness with me. We'll start a new group of Sicarii. They went out to the wilderness. Festus' troops were waiting there, and they killed every one of them. So Festus starts out pretty good as far as Rome goes, as well as the Jews go. So he, very shrewd guy. We don't know much about him. A couple of years later, Festus dies, so he's gone. So, so much for Festus. Agrippa and Bernice, now, what an interesting couple this is. This is King Agrippa II. King Agrippa II, obviously, he is son of Herod Agrippa I. Great Bible scholar to figure that out. So we have Herod Agrippa I, who was the first persecutor of the church back in Acts chapter 12. He's the great-grandson of Herod the Great back in Matthew chapter 2, who said, let's get rid of all, he was worried about Jesus being born, so let's get rid, he killed all the, the male babies, right? You remember his great-grandfather, so he has a real great bloodline. He ruled the areas northeast of Palestine. He also was given one very important job, and that was to supervise the temple treasury, also to be in charge of naming the high priest, the succession, the succession of the high priest. So that was his responsibilities for Agrippa. And he comes in with Bernice. Now, Bernice is his sister who had been married to one of his uncles who died. And if you just read this and you take the word sister out, you'd think that Herod and Agrippa, I mean, uh, Herod Agrippa and Bernice were married. Uh, it just sounds like it. And that's the way the world thought about them at that time too. As a matter of fact, they said that, the, the historians you read about it and said this was an incestuous relationship between Herod Agrippa and Bernice. So it's just a lovely couple. Anyway, as I was reading this this week over and over again, I said, Lord, what in the world are you telling us here? Over and over again, we see the missionary journeys are over, right? As of chapter 21, the third missionary journey, done. All the missionary journeys are over. Paul is, goes to Jerusalem. All of his friends say, don't go to Jerusalem. He goes to Jerusalem. He goes to Jerusalem. He's taken prisoner. Paul then, from that point on, is a prisoner the rest of his life in some regard. Uh, he goes from Jerusalem then to Caesarea and ultimately to Rome. So everything that we're seeing here is, you know, it's just a little depressing. It, it means that, that the ministry is sort of over as far as Paul's great evangelistic ministry of starting churches all over the world. Now, he stays in custody, which is important, for two years before chapter 25. 
two years. Then he's going he's to be, we've got even longer custody coming. So two years, he's in custody waiting, and then he sees Festus, he answers the charges, and then, then he goes on, and next week, see, he goes on to Agrippa, and he stands in front of Herod Agrippa. See what you're going to miss next week? You're going to miss Herod Agrippa. So I'm sorry, but you're going to miss Herod. All right, and, you, and he's, he's just such a lovely guy. So there's no significant doctrinal teaching. There's no new churches started. Chapter 25, nobody gets saved. I'm sort of like, what are we, what's going on here? So I kept reading and reading about it. I said, why do I kept reading about these trials and these charges? The charges are the same, and they're all baloney. And Paul tells them it's all baloney. And he makes the same, he said, I, I, he said, I appealed to Caesar. I didn't do this. I haven't done anything against the temple. I haven't done anything against the Jews. I haven't done anything against the Romans. But we also remember that Jesus stood by Paul and said, Paul, you're going to Rome. I'm with you. I'm going to help you. But you've got to testify for me in Rome. So, as we talked about, Arthur, this morning, it continues to be about the providence of God and how God works through various natural happenings to make his plan fit together. But it's also today, I, I want to emphasize even more, the, the purpose of waiting. I don't know about you, but I hate to wait. I hate to wait. And I, I know where I got that. I got that genetically from my father. He, uh, I, my dad was a, a great Christian, a great man, and I loved him to death. But he's not a great waiter. He did not like to wait. He, was, he told me uh, he, when he was in the Army, he said, I only learned a couple of things when I was in the Army. He said, the main thing I learned, he told me this over and over again when I was a kid. I'm not really sure why he told me this. Maybe it's for this lesson. But he told me over and over again, what I hated about the Army was, and I learned in the Army was, that they had one thing that you must be comfortable with, and that is hurry up and wait. He said, that's all I did. Right, Don? Hurry up and wait. Right, Ron? Hurry up and wait. I, and I don't know, was the Navy the same way? Hurry up and wait? I don't know. But I know the Army was. And that's what happened with Paul. Everybody's hurrying up, trying to get this thing done, get this thing done. But God said, no, wait, 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 wait. What's the purpose of it? All right, we'll get to that in a minute. Providentially, God protected Paul, didn't he? And moved him to where he needed to be. He said in chapter 23, verse 11, The, Lord, the following night the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, if you, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify in Rome. So the plot is already, we already know the end of the story. You got to be in Rome. We know that. Why didn't Festus agree to bring Paul from Caesarea to Jerusalem? It seemed to make sense. Doesn't it make sense if you just look at it from the world's perspective? Doesn't it make sense that Festus would say, you know, he's trying to ingratiate himself with this the, his new guys, you know, the high priest and all these you know, Jewish leaders. And, you know, what can I do for you guys? They said, hey, why don't you bring Paul up here? 
and we'll, we'll kill him on the way. And he said, no, I don't think I want to do that. You guys come down to Caesarea. Well, that makes no sense. Well, it's who's in control. Festus was not in control of the plan. God was in control of the plan. And it's, so this is the only way it's going to work. Let me illustrate. I, I want to take just a minute from Scripture and illustrate because we've talked about the providence of God, but I want to show you from Scripture I want to show you some great examples of the providence of God. So you don't, you don't have to try to follow with me. It'll sound like a sword drill in here. So I, I'm just going to go quickly, and I'm going to read some passages of Scripture. And if you want to jot them down, look at them later, or if you want to try to follow me, fine. John chapter 19, verse 10 and 11, we have Jesus in front of Pilate. Pilate said to Jesus, Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, now listen to what he answered, verse 11, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Pilate, you're not in charge. I'm in charge. God has a plan. You're not in charge, all right? In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Peter is preaching the great sermon, and Peter said on the same subject, Peter said about Jesus, this man was handed over to you by what? God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of a wicked man, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. He said, this man, Jesus, handed over to you in God's providential plan to save mankind. And it wasn't your plan. It was God's plan. All right? Let me read uh, Genesis chapter 45, one of my favorite stories, the story of Joseph. In chapter 45, now the brothers, you know, have lived, are trying to live through the famine. And so the father sends the brothers up to, up to see Joseph. They don't know it's Joseph. Joseph had been sold by them into slavery, right? And then he'd gone to Potiphar's house. He'd endured that and then the lies that were told about him there by Potiphar's wife. Then he goes to jail, and God finally gets out of jail, and God promotes him. After years, God promotes him, and now he's, he's second guy in all of Egypt. And so then they, uh, they show up, the brothers show up, need something, and finally Joseph said, hey guys, it's me. Can you imagine the brothers looking and say, oh no, this is not a good thing. We sold him in slavery, now he holds our life in his hands. Listen to what he said, 45 verse 7. He said, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and save your lives by great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here but God. He said, you didn't send me here. It's part of God's plan, part of God's providential plan. One more. Daniel chapter 4, five times going to say it because we need, you know, at least for me, I have to have it said over and over and over again until I get it. So Daniel chapter 4, you know, we're talking, Daniel's talking to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is the king of the Babylonian Empire, big shot, big guy, telling everybody to worship him, setting up a big idol, worship Nebuchadnezzar. He's the big guy. I, he is the most powerful nation ruling the world, the known world. So what does, uh, <laughs> he has a dream, not a good dream. Um, you talk about a nightmare. Nebuchadnezzar, in chapter 4, verse 17, 
So the decision is announced by messengers. He's telling about this dream. He said, the holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. Verse 25, Daniel says to him, he said, here, this dream, he said, hey, guess what, Nebuchadnezzar? You're going to go nuts. You're going to go out in the backyard and start eating grass like an animal. They're going to think you're insane. They're going to try to hide you from everybody because you're the most powerful king on the, in, on the earth, and now you're going to be absolutely wild, crazy man. Here's what you're going to do. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. All right, then God speaks. In verse 32 of chapter 4, seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. It gives them to anyone he wishes. Say, well, I still haven't got it. Verse 35, Nebuchadnezzar comes out of this terrible time. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? One more. Chapter 5, Daniel says to his son, Belshazzar, who thinks everything's going great, he said he was driven, he's talking about his dad, he said, hey, your, your dad, your, your real smart dad was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal, lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle. And, his, and he said, what, is that? what does that really mean? I think it really means he ate grass with the cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and sets over them anyone he wishes. Five times when Daniel is talking to the big guy, Nebuchadnezzar, he said, God's got a plan, and this is what's going to happen. He rules. And so God takes care of the Babylonian Empire. Then he sets up and, and takes it down. Then he sets up the Medes and the Persians and takes it down. Then he sets up the Greek uh, Empire and takes it down. Then he sets up the Roman Empire and takes it down. So why didn't Festus do what they wanted? Because God was in control. And, you know, I, you said, if right now, if politics have you a little worried, I can understand why. You don't, you know, every day, every day, every moment of the day, I got to where I said, okay, Lord, I'm going to quit looking at my phone news when I first get up in the morning. I look at it and say, okay, the president did this, Congress said this, the wild forward bunch did this, uh, the Republicans said this, the Democrats said this, and then this happened, and then this happened, this happened. And you say, what, what are we going to do? Oh, I mean, really. I'm supposed to pray for my government. I'm supposed to pray for our leaders. But you know what? God's got this. And, you know, if, if next week, if President Trump's out in the backyard eating grass like a donkey with the cattle, well, I mean, that must be what God's got in plan for him. You see, because God's in control. Providentially, the reason that Festus, in this simple case, did not take Paul and bring him into Jerusalem is because God said, it doesn't fit my plan. So, what else? And then I close. Waiting on God during difficult times. I don't think it was easy for Paul to be in the waiting room. How many of you have been in a waiting room lately? 
<laughs> Isn't that a great place to go? I hate the waiting room. The waiting room was designed by Satan. You sit there and wait and wait and wait, and the doctors know the answer and won't come tell you. They say, well, let them sweat a little bit more. I'm not going to tell you. You know, Paul remained a prisoner of God's sovereign design for two years. He patiently waited and allowed the Lord's plan to unfold. God had promised Rome. Paul waited. Hudson Taylor was a great missionary and finder, founder of the Inland China Mission. Great missionary. For six years, he in China had accomplished much, but he became ill and had to return home for five years. And here's how one writer described that time. Invalid, home at 29 years old after six years of intensive service in China, he settled with his little family in the east end of London. Outside interest lessened, friends began to forget, and five long hidden years were spent in the dreary street of a poor part of London where the tailors were shut up to prayer and patience. From the record of those years it has been written, yet without those hidden years, with all their growth and testing, how could the vision and enthusiasm of youth been matured for the leadership that was to be in the China Inland Mission. What can we do? What can we do? What are our choices in the waiting room? You have, I think, three choices in the waiting room. In the waiting room of difficult situations, you have three choices. I have three choices. The first choice is I can ignore that I'm in the waiting room and I'm not going to learn anything. I don't like where I'm at. I don't like being in the waiting room, and I, I'm just going to ignore it. My second lesson that I could learn is, my response I mean, is resist or fight those circumstances or submit to whatever God has for me while I'm in the waiting room. What can we learn in the waiting room? Number one, God will not give up on you in the waiting room. Now listen folks, I, I, let me just talk personally about our class for a second. There's a lot of people in our class in the waiting room right now, in the, in the waiting room of difficulty, uh, some people in the waiting room of sickness, of illness, of uh, financial difficulty, of emotional difficulties, of family difficulties, and you are in the waiting room. It is not your favorite place. I don't want to be in the waiting room. I want to be doing something. But here, it's, and, and our pastor has said this many times, not in these words, but it's, it's the same principle. We're either getting ready to go in the waiting room, we are in the waiting room right now, or we've just come out of the waiting room and finished up surgery and now we're moving on. You're in one of the three places. You say, well, it's sort of a fatalistic way to look at everything. How many of you have found that to be true in your life? Yeah, it's true. It's true, isn't it? We are, we are. You know what, you know what it is? It's just, I, I don't want to be there. I don't want to be in the waiting room. I hate it. I don't want to be there, so I'm just going to deny it. The waiting room. Difficult place to be. Now, 
God will not give up on us while we're in the waiting room. He's committed to our continued growth and maturity. Can I read a verse of scripture for you? Philippians 1, 6. Being confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. If he has begun a good work in us, his plan is to complete that work and in order to complete that work in your life and in my life, we've got to sit in the waiting room for a while and learn some stuff. And I don't know how long that wait is. Sometimes it's a long, long wait. Sometimes it can be years. Some of you just go, oh, great. I was hoping it'd be about like 10 minutes. No, sometimes it can be a very long wait of learning. And as it was for... Paul, when he had to go to the Saul, had to go to the desert, or when Moses had to spend 40 years on the backside of the desert. Number two, the waiting room can transform our spirit. With each refining experience, we think and behave more like Jesus. Number three, the results of being in the waiting room make us more valuable for his use. I don't understand that, and I don't, you know, I can't even, first of all, I can't believe that God would want to use me, but if I go through that time where he builds me up and teaches me and helps me and refines me and purifies me, I become more valuable in service to him. Here's what the quote from Chuck Swindoll, our, God has a plan for you. Put your name in, wherever he says you, put your name in it for me just for a second. God has a plan for you. He made you with a specific purpose in mind. Not because he needs you. He can achieve all things on his own. But to let you join him in accomplishing something wonderful and then share the joy of victory with him. His disciples help prepare you to fulfill your unique role in his plan to redeem the world from evil. Those of you who read this little book in the morning like I do may have read this this morning. You simply can't debate it. God's way is better than your way. I'm having a hard time with that one. I really think sometimes I got it figured out. This is, this is the way. No, God's way is better than your way because his plan is infinitely better than any plan you would have for yourself. Every turn he writes into your story is right. Every twist of the plot is for the best. Every new character or unexpected event is a tool of his grace. Each new chapter advances his purpose. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them, for the ways of the Lord are right. Hosea 14.9 It is almost a gross understatement to say that God's ways are better. How could they not be? He is infinite in wisdom and grace. So if you forget everything else, just remember that his plan is infinitely better than any plan we have for ourselves. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, your teaching, your love for us, your plan for us. And as we sit in the waiting room, not knowing sometimes exactly what to expect, 
I pray that that would be a time we learn that you minister to our hearts and that you teach us. For those that are sitting there right now with various things that are on their heart, waiting, I pray that you'd give us the same experience that the Apostle Paul had when you drew near him and said, look, I've got other things for you to do. For we pray in Christ's name, amen.